We're continuing our Christmas series uh, this week called Prophet, Priest and King. Uh, If you are with us last week, you'll know that we looked at Jesus as our prophet, the one who unapologetically gives God's words to us. But today, we'll be considering Jesus as our priest. And when we think about Jesus being our priest, we're thinking of two things. One, his sacrifice, and then two, his intercession. So, uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. And I'd like to begin this morning by reading verses 10 through 18. Hebrews 2, 10 through 18. It says this, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of your congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. Well, in the many films that I have watched about rescue missions, and I've certainly watched my fair share, let me tell you, there is a common theme that emerges through each of them, that for any given rescue mission, you have to pick the right hero for the job. Uh, In the 2004 film, iRobot, it was only the modified robot, Sonny, uh, who was able to save humanity from the plight of artificial intelligence, because only he wasn't subject to the three laws of robotics. Only Sonny could save the day. If you've read any of the Lord of the Rings novels, you'll know that it was Frodo Baggins, who was the only one in Middle-earth, who was able to deliver them from the threat of the ring. Everyone else was too susceptible to its power. Only Neo, the Chosen One, was able to destroy the Matrix, and only Simba could rescue Pride Rock from his Uncle Scar. Any given rescue mission has to have the appropriate and suitable hero. You've got to pick the right man for the job. And as we enter this second chapter of Hebrews, we encounter this incredible little nine-verse portion of Scripture that lets us know why Jesus is the only suitable candidate to save humanity from its plight. You see, at Christmas, we celebrate the incarnation, the infleshing of Christ, but Jesus didn't become incarnate for incarnation's sake. He came because he had to intervene. And the author of Hebrews lets us know from the very outset something that I think is actually quite curious that in order for Jesus to be deemed a suitable candidate to save humanity, he had to go through a a preparation of sorts. Verse 10 says that Jesus, the founder or, or captain of our salvation, was made perfect through suffering. So how should we understand that verse? I mean, is the author of Hebrews saying that Jesus is a bit like the Marvel character Thor? I mean, if you haven't seen the film, Thor was a very arrogant hero in Asgard. He used to pick battles for fun and it got his nation into a fair bit of trouble. So his dad, in order to sort out his arrogance, sent him down to earth for a good dose of suffering, a little bit of humble pie, so that hopefully he could come back. 
Now, is the author of Hebrews trying to get at something like that, that Jesus was at some point below the threshold of perfection and that he had to go down to earth to endure a bit of suffering and then they took a second x-ray and then suddenly Jesus was now above the threshold and could be the perfect sacrifice? Is that what the author of Hebrews is saying? Certainly not. We reject that in the utmost. Hebrews 7.26 says this, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. You see, morally speaking, from eternity past to eternity future, Jesus was always perfect. But this process, this, this perfection through suffering that verse 10 refers to is how Jesus, during his incarnate ministry, undertook and perfectly performed a life of impeccable obedience to his Father. Jesus was, in every respect, tempted as we are. And in that sense, the author of Hebrews can describe this life of obedience as perfection through suffering. His life was a life of trial and temptation, right? But then at the same time, we, we can't look at this life of obedience and say that Jesus was like a reluctant student sitting under the tyranny of a difficult exam. I mean, a student who just so happened to hand in a perfect exam paper. Now, when Jesus was handed this assignment by his father, it was his delight to complete it. He wrote, Father, I love you on the cover page and couldn't stop smiling when he handed it in. It was his delight always to do the will of his father. Look how this gets picked up in Hebrews 10. It says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. This was the heart disposition of Jesus. Michael Horton puts it this way. He says, not only was he a non-transgressor of the law, but the joyful fulfiller of all righteousness. But the author of Hebrews also lets us know there in verse 10 that not only was Jesus made perfect through suffering, he qualifies it and says it was fitting that he be made perfect through suffering, right? Now, with all the food I'm about to eat over Christmas time, there won't be much fitting, especially in terms of my clothing. But this verse says that there is something fitting at Christmas time. In order to bring many sons to glory, in order for him to do this, there was a couple of components that had to be taken care of. Number one, Jesus had to die a substitutionary death. Jesus died the death that you and I deserve to die. That which is often called his passive obedience. Something happened to him when he came. But then it wasn't just a substitutionary death that he came to, to fulfill, but it was a substitutionary life. He lived on our behalf the perfect, joy-filled, God-oriented, righteous life that you and I failed to live. What is often called his active obedience. Or as we would say at the project, he lived the life of a true human. And he had to do both to save us. This is what theologians sometimes call double imputation or what Martin Luther famously called the great exchange. On the cross, our sins are imputed to Christ and he is judged for them. But then his perfect righteous life of obedience is imputed to us. This is what Jesus did. Both had to happen. And there's been errors in understanding this in throughout church history on either side. Some have said that Jesus only came because he had to die that his obedience to the law of God was more of a private matter than a public matter. But then on the other side, people have said, oh, well, he only needed really to, to, 
being carnate. He didn't have to die at all. As long as he came in the flesh, that was enough. But no, we realize that both had to happen. Jesus came to die for us on the cross and to pass the test that you and I failed. You see, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve failed the test by giving in to the temptation of the serpent. But Jesus, when he came, when he was tempted by the serpent in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, he didn't give in. He passes the test on our behalf. He always did the things that were pleasing to his father. And this is why he's the only suitable hero for the plight of humanity. Herman Barving said it this way. He said, Christ's entire life and work from his conception to his death was substitutionary in nature. And he continues in verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. I'm one of four siblings, and I'm sure for anyone else in the room who has a sibling, we will know that there are times when we get a little bit ashamed to, call, to say that we're related to our brothers and sisters, right? Occasionally, they do things that make us squirm. I'm seeing some laughter in the fourth row. They do things that make us squirm, right? Uh, my sister, she lived in London for many years. She made a living in London, very expensive place to live, by being a nanny. And she's very capable at entertaining and looking after children. She's going to be an incredible mum, uh, giving birth in January. Can't wait to be Uncle Jados. And um, she actually was a nanny for a very well-off family in London, and that's how she managed to stay over there. Now, my sister's name is Briny, so she got the nickname Nanny B. Right Now, I get along famously with Briny, but every now and then Nanny B comes out and I get along maybe not so well. Uh, my sister and I used to run a community group together down on the Gold Coast and sometimes we'd be finishing up after an evening of Bible study and fellowship, perhaps I was washing up the dishes, only to find that Briny was now turning into Nanny B mode, <laughs> assuming the posture of a frog... Galump went the little green frog one day. Galump went the little green frog. La di da di da. I'm sorry, you can't do that here. We are not related. Can you cut it out? She just goes into nanny bee mode out of nowhere. It's just a little bit weird, right? <laughs> um, you ever had those moments with your siblings? I mean, even on screen, right? This was my dad's um, 60th birthday uh, Zoom session from earlier in the year. Uh, we couldn't get down to the Gold Coast because of uh, the COVID restrictions, but as you can see, they're circled in yellow. You guessed it. Nanny B thought she would make an appearance, right? But that's my sister. I, I honestly don't know her any different. Uh, she's got some pretty crazy quirks, but I love her. And I'm not ashamed to call her my sister. I mean, let it be heard. I'm related to Nanny B. Not ashamed, right? And in verse 11, that's how Christ views us. It says that Jesus is our older brother. You see, the coming of Christ we celebrate at Christmas isn't just some detached rescue story. It's a family rescue story of an older brother coming in to rescue his younger siblings. You see, you and I, we've got, we've got things on our record far more shameful than songs about green tree frogs and big sunglasses, right? We, we're full of sin and shame. But Jesus is not ashamed to be called our brother. The text says that he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are sanctified, that's us, all have one source. Now, by one source, commentators wrestle exactly what, what's he referring to when it says we're all from one source. Well, you've actually got a couple of options here. Um, some say that the source is God the Father and that Christ is identifying with us as our brother by virtue of our adoption into God's family. 
That's one option. The only thing is, though, when you appreciate the flow of the argument and that there's a, a denial of shame aspect coming from Christ here, that doesn't quite line up. I think it actually makes far more sense to say that this one source is not referring to God the Father, but to Adam. That what Christ is doing here, he's identifying with us as our brother, not by virtue of our adoption, but by virtue of his true humanity. He is God become man. A.W. Pink, he put it this way. He said, The whole passage is intended to bring out the oneness of Christ with his people in their humiliation. In other words, the apostle is not here speaking of our being lifted up to Christ's level, but of his coming down to ours. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. The one for whom and by whom all things exist brings himself down to our level. He, he partakes of our humiliation and says, hey, you know what, my young, younger brothers and sisters, they're a, bunch of, they're a bunch of sinful plebs at times, but I am proud to call them my siblings. I'm glad to call them family, and I would gladly step into flesh and blood existence, insert myself into the story of history and go to the cross for them. This is the story of our older brother come to say us. We sung it, uh, save us. We sung it last week. Pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. That's a good reason to say Merry Christmas. Jesus not, is not ashamed to call us brother. And in verses 12 and 13, he's using Old Testament uh, imagery to bring out this idea of, of, of family identification. Let's read verses 14 through 16 again. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. You see, before the coming of Christ, death was the paddock that Satan played in. That's not to say that Satan was ever sovereign over life and death, because that's always been in God's jurisdiction. We see that in places like Job chapter 2. But Satan most certainly played in that paddock. That was the realm in which he operated, and God assigned him his boundaries, if you will. But within those boundaries that God assigned, Satan wreaked havoc. In Genesis, it was his enticing that led to the fall of humanity that brought in the curse. The day that you eat of it, you will surely die. He always, even now, continues to incite people into sin, which leads to death. We read about that in Romans 6. John 8.44 says that the devil was a murderer even from the beginning. And on the pages of Scripture, especially in the Gospels, you can just taste the deathly poison in all the infirmities that he inflicted on people. We read in Luke 18 of a woman who had been crippled for 18 years because of the devil's work. In uh, verse uh, 16 of Luke 13, Jesus said, And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? You see, in context, he's correcting their view of the Sabbath, but Jesus lets us know quite clearly that it was in fact Satan who had crippled this woman for 18 years. This is the power that Satan used to wield. But then we learn in verse 14 that through the death of Christ, this power has been destroyed. You see, prior to the cross, Satan was delivered a preliminary blow, if you will, just by the very life of Jesus. We'll call it the left jab. In Luke 10.18, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. 
which means that when Jesus arrived on scene, his announcement that the kingdom of God had come and his subsequent defeat of Satan in the wilderness meant that Satan had been given a left jab. That's why Jesus and his 72 disciples that he sent out were able to uh, cast out demons and heal people with such relative ease. He saw Satan fall uh, like lightning from heaven. And you and I in Christ can do the same now. But that was just the left jab. The death of Jesus Christ was the right hook. You could say, it's like the old boxing saying, left, right, good night. That's what the cross did to Satan. D.A. Carson, he put it this way. He said, in one sense, Satan was defeated by the outbreaking power of the kingdom of God, even within the ministry of Jesus. But the fundamental smashing of his reign of tyranny takes place in the death and exaltation of Jesus. Fundamental smashing. How good is that word? I'll be using it all summer. (laughs) India suffered a fundamental smashing at the hand of the Aussies. And this fundamental smashing has significance for the younger siblings. Jesus came to save. Verse 15 says it delivers them from the fear of death. That's what this fundamental smashing does. Now, what I'm about to say next will involve a large degree of generalization, so please keep that in mind. I want to be sensitive to any unique situations in the room or in your past, especially if you're navigating a season where perhaps death is knocking at the door. There's always going to be exceptions to the rule. But generally speaking, the way previous generations feared death compared to the way we feared death is just a little bit different. Uh, Just earlier this week, I started reading a book by a guy named Matthew McCulloch, It's called Remember Death. And he highlights that unlike previous generations, we we tend not to die at home anymore the way perhaps previous generations did in the presence of loved ones, even children. Now we tend to die in hospitals and we've developed a kind of institutionalised view of death. It's something that happens over there in that professional context and it's not in our immediate view as much. And furthermore, because of our medical advancements, I mean, we're, we're often able to prolong life and make life far more comfortable the way previous generations couldn't. Here's a little extract from uh, the first chapter of his book. It's quite sobering. He said, From the medieval period until the 20th century, death was a public phenomenon. The dying often knew when they were dying. There was no blind faith that medicine would make any difference. So medicine offered no excuse to avoid facing reality. Families, friends and even children were familiar with death and didn't attempt to hide from it. According to Ares, another author, in the medieval West, the deathbed scene was a public place. When folks on the street noticed a priest headed off to the last rites, they would fall in line behind him and process into the sick room. As Ares puts it, it was essential that parents, friends and neighbours be present, including children. Death was observed as a matter of course and was no less public than birth or marriage. This was normal life for previous generations. And I can understand why the fear of death would have been particularly vivid for them in that time in history. It was all around them. But in our day and age, at least in the West, the fear of death manifests in a different form. It's the form of death being a taboo subject. You see, previous generations thought it was inappropriate to talk about the birds and the bees. But in our generation, death is now the taboo subject. Whether it's from cosmetics to conversation or even some of the COVID stuff that's going on, we use the three Ds. Deny, deny, deny. This is even true in the global Western church. We're so busy trying to live our best life now, we forget that our best life is actually to come. We deny that death 
is a thing in some sense in the West. But the year that has been 2020 has put us Westerners in a bit of a time machine of sorts and we've tasted, perhaps for the first time in a long time, a fear of death the way previous generations would have thought was quite normal. It's disoriented a lot of people. So, so what am I saying here? Am I saying that if we all just jumped out of the 21st century context and you know, put on some different time goggles, we just handle this death thing perfectly fine? Slightly, but then not really. Uh, no matter what century you're from, death is still our enemy. Project Church, we, humans originally were never meant to die. It was the fall that brought in death. So even for the redeemed on this side of eternity, I mean, death is going to sting. We will weep, we will mourn, and we will ask God why. Death is still our enemy. But the author of Hebrews lets us know something here that is spectacular that we can celebrate at Christmas is that death is a conquered enemy. And it's a conquered enemy in an already not yet fashion. The first coming of Christ, that defeated the power of death. And then we anticipate a second coming of Christ where we will say death is no more. It's been swallowed up in victory. So though you and I will still taste death, if you are in Christ, you don't have to fear it. What a, what a gift at Christmas time. What did you get in your stocking? Oh, I got new socks, I got a box of Lego, four new books, and I'm not afraid to die. What a stocking filler. That's incredible. You see, Christ partook of our raw, human, flesh and blood existence, not the existence of angels. Verse 16, there's no scriptural evidence for a redemptive plan for angels, but... He took on our raw human flesh and blood existence and he took on this existence to destroy death and destroy the fear of it by dying. That's what he has come to do for us. Matthew Henry put it this way. He said, Christ became man and died to deliver them from those perplexities of the soul by letting them know that death is not only a conquered enemy but a reconciled friend. Not sent to hurt the soul or separate it from the love of God, but to put an end to all their grievances and complaints and to give them a passage to eternal life and blessedness so that to them death is not now in the hand of Satan, but in the hand of Christ. Not Satan's servant, but Christ's servant. Has not hell following it, but heaven to all who are in Christ. That's the gift we have at Christmas. We don't have to fear death. Let's read verses 17 and 18 again. It says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Why doesn't the band come and join me? You see, the final thing we need to see in this text as we think about Christ as our high priest is not only is he the only suitable saviour, but he's a sympathetic one. It's not just that he saves us by absorbing the wrath of God on our behalf, which is incredible in and of itself. That's what the word propitiation means there in verse 17. But that he continues to help us along our pilgrimage. And he helps us to wage war on sin. You see, Christ's priestly office didn't end at the cross. It continues even now. He always lives to make intercession for his people. Listen, if, if you didn't make time to pray this week, if, if you forgot, Jesus didn't. If you didn't pray for your family this week, Jesus did. 
He, he always lives to make intercession for his people. And listen, if you're, if you're struggling in sin, which is all of us, we need to be reminded that Jesus has raw flesh and blood in the trenches experience with temptation. He's not aloof with respect to temptation. Pete quoted it earlier, Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. I thought this quote from Thomas Hewitt was helpful. He said, The power of sympathy does not depend on the experience of sin, but on the experience of the strength of the temptation to sin, which only the sinless can know in its full intensity. You see, Jesus actually knows temptation than any one of us, by sheer virtue of the fact he never gave in to it. Because once you give in to temptation, it's no longer temptation. It's just sin. But Jesus only knows the former, which makes him not only the perfect sacrificial lamb, but the most tender-hearted, understanding companion that could possibly join us on our pilgrimage. He's an older brother. This is the gift we've been given at Christmas. Jesus was our perfect sacrifice. He continues to be our tender-hearted mediator. And he is and always will be our great high priest.